Tom Jones by Henry Fielding. Book 13. Chapter 7. Containing the whole humours of a masquerade. Our cavaliers now arrived at that temple where Haydigger, the great arbiter de la Serium, the great high priest of pleasure, presides, and, like other heathen priests, imposes on his votaries by the pretended presence of the deity, when in reality no such deity is there. Mr. Nightingale, having taken a turn or two with his companion, soon left him, and walked off with a female, saying, "'Now you are here, sir, you must beat about for your own game.' Jones began to entertain strong hopes that his Sophia was present, and these hopes gave him more spirits than the lights, the music, and the company, though these are pretty strong antidotes against the spleen. He now accosted every woman he saw whose stature, shape, or air bore any resemblance to his angel, to all of whom he endeavoured to say something smart in order to engage an answer by which he might discover that voice which he thought it impossible he should mistake. Some of these answered by a question in a squeaking voice. Do you know me? Much the greater number said, I don't know you, sir, and nothing more. Some called him an impertinent fellow. Some made him no answer at all. Some said, Indeed, I don't know your voice, and I shall have nothing to say to you. And many gave him as kind answers as he could wish but not in the voice he desired to hear. Whilst he was talking with one of these last, who was in the habit of a shepherdess, a lady in a domino came up to him, and slapping him on the shoulder whispered to him at the same time in the ear, If you talk any longer with that trollop, I will acquaint Miss Western. Jones no sooner heard that name, than, immediately quitting his former companion, he applied to the domino, begging and entreating her to show him the lady she had mentioned, if she was then in the room. The mask walked hastily to the upper end of the innermost apartment before she spoke, and then, instead of answering him, sat down and declared she was tired. Joan sat down by her, and still persisted in his entreaties. At last the lady coldly answered, I imagine Mr. Jones had been a more discerning lover than to suffer any disguise to conceal his mistress from him. Is she here then, madam? replied Jones, with some vehemence, upon which the lady cried, Hush, sir, you will be observed. I promise you upon my honour, Miss Western is not here. Jones, now taking the mask by the hand, fell to entreating her in the most earnest manner to acquaint him where he might find Sophia, and when he could obtain no direct answer, he began to upbraid her gently for having disappointed him the day before, and concluded, saying, Indeed, my good fairy queen, I know your majesty very well, notwithstanding the affected disguise of your voice. Indeed, Mrs. Fitzpatrick, it is a little cruel to divert yourself at the expense of my torments. The mast answered, Though you have so ingeniously discovered me, I must still speak in the same voice, lest I should be known by others. And do you think, good sir, that I have no greater regard for my cousin than to insist in carrying on an affair between you two, which must end in her ruin as well as your own? Besides, I promise you, my cousin is not mad enough to consent to her own destruction, if you are so much her enemy as to tempt her to it. Alas, madam, said Jones, you little know my heart when you call me an enemy of Sophia. And yet to ruin anyone, cries the other, you will allow is the act of an enemy, and when by the same act you must knowingly and certainly bring ruin on yourself, is it not folly or madness as well as guilt? Now, sir, my cousin hath very little more than her father will please to give her, very little for one of her fashion. You know him, and you know your own situation. Jones vowed he had no such design on Sophia, that he would rather suffer the most violent of deaths than sacrifice her interest to his desires. He said, 
he knew how unworthy he was of her every way and that he had long ago resolved to quit all such aspiring thoughts but that some strange accidents had made him desirous to see her once more when he promised he would take leave of her for ever no madam concluded he my love is not of that base kind which seeks its own satisfaction at the expense of what is most dear to its object i would sacrifice everything to the possession of my sophia but sophia herself though the reader may have already conceived no very sublime idea of the virtue of the lady in the mask and though possibly she may hereafter appear not to deserve one of the first characters of her sex yet it is certain these generous sentiments made a strong impression upon her and greatly added to the affection she had before conceived for our young hero this lady now after a silence of a few moments said she did not see his pretensions to sophia so much in the light of presumptions as of imprudence young fellows says she can never have two aspiring thoughts i love ambition in a young man and i would have you cultivated as much as possible perhaps you may succeed with those who are infinitely superior in fortune nay i am convinced there are women but don't you think me a strange creature mr jones to be thus giving advice to a man with whom i am so little acquainted and one with whose behaviour to me i have so little reason to be pleased here jones began to apologize and to hope he had not offended in anything he said of her cousin to which the mask answered and are you so little versed in the sex to imagine that you can well affront a lady more than by entertaining her with your passion for another woman if the fairy queen had conceived no better opinion of your gallantry she would scarce have appointed you to meet her at the masquerade jones had never less inclination to an amour than at present but gallantry to the ladies was among his principles of honour and he held it as much incumbent on him to accept a challenge to love as if it had been a challenge to fight nay his very love to sophia made it necessary for him to keep well with the lady as he made no doubt but she was capable of bringing him into the presence of the other he began therefore to make a very warm answer to her last speech when a mask in the character of an old woman joined them this mask was one of those ladies who go to a masquerade only to vent ill-nature by telling people rude truths and by endeavouring as the phrase is to spoil as much sport as they are able this good lady therefore having observed jones and his friend whom she knew well in close consultation together in a corner of the room concluded she would nowhere satisfy her spleen better than by interrupting them she attacked them therefore and soon drove them from their retirement nor was she contented with this but pursued them to every place which they shifted to avoid her till mr nightingale seeing the distress of his friend at last relieved him and engaged the old woman in another pursuit while jones and his mask were walking together about the room to rid themselves of the teaser he observed his lady speak to several masks with the same freedom of acquaintance as if they had been barefaced he could not help expressing his surprise at this saying sure madam you must have infinite discernment to know people in all disguises to which the lady answered you cannot conceive anything more insipid and childish than a masquerade to the people of fashion who in general know one another as well here as when they meet in an assembly or a drawing-room nor will any woman of condition converse with a person with whom she is not acquainted in short the generality of persons whom you see here may more properly be said to kill time in this place than in any other and generally retire from hence more tired than from the longest sermon 
to say the truth i begin to be in that situation myself and if i have any faculty at guessing you are not much better pleased i protest it would be almost charity in me to go home for your sake i know but one charity equal to it cries jones and that is to suffer me to wait on you home sure answered the lady you have a strange opinion of me to imagine that upon such an acquaintance i would let you into my doors at this time of night i fancy you impute the friendship i have shown my cousin to some other motive confess honestly don't you consider this contrived interview as little better than a downright assignation are you used mr jones to make these sudden conquests i am not used madam said jones to submit to such sudden conquests but as you have taken my heart by surprise the rest of my body hath a right to follow so you must pardon me if i resolve to attend you wherever you go he accompanied these words with some proper actions upon which the lady after a gentle rebuke and saying their familiarity would be observed told him she was going to sup with an acquaintance whither she hoped he would not follow her for if you should said she i shall be thought an unaccountable creature though my friend indeed is not censorious yet i hope you won't follow me i protest i shall not know what to say if you do the lady presently after quitted the masquerade and jones notwithstanding the severe prohibition he had received presumed to attend her he was now reduced to the same dilemma we have mentioned before namely the want of a shilling and could not relieve it by borrowing as before he therefore walked boldly on after the chair in which his lady rode pursued by a grand huzzah from all the chairmen present who wisely take the best care they can to discountenance all walking afoot by their betters luckily however the gentry who attend at the opera house were too busy to quit their stations and as the lateness of the hour prevented him from meeting many of their brethren in the street he proceeded without molestation in a dress which at another season would have certainly raised a mob at his heels the lady was set down in a street not far from hanover square where the door being presently opened she was carried in and the gentleman without any ceremony walked in after her jones and his companion were now together in a very well furnished and well warmed room when the female still speaking in her masquerade voice said she was surprised at her friend who must absolutely have forgot her appointment at which after venting much resentment she suddenly expressed some apprehension from jones and asked them what the world would think of their having been alone together in a house at that time of night but instead of a direct answer to so important a question jones began to be very importunate with the lady to unmask and at length having prevailed there appeared not mrs fitzpatrick but the lady bellaston herself it would be tedious to give the particular conversation which consisted of very common and ordinary occurrences and which lasted from two till six o'clock in the morning it is sufficient to mention all of it that is anywise material to this history and this was a promise that the lady would endeavour to find sophia and in a few days bring him to an interview with her on condition that he would then take his leave of her when this was thoroughly settled and a second meeting in the evening appointed at the same place they separated the lady returned to her house and jones to his lodgings end of chapter seven chapter eight containing a scene of distress which will appear very extraordinary to most of our readers jones having refreshed himself with a few hours sleep summoned partridge to his presence and delivering him a bank-note of fifty pounds ordered him to go and change it partridge received this with sparkling eyes though when he came to reflect farther it raised in him some suspicions not very advantageous to the honour of his master 
to these the dreadful idea he had of the masquerade the disguise in which his master had gone out and returned and his having been abroad all night contributed in plain language the only way he could possibly find to account for the possession of this note was by robbery and to confess the truth the reader unless he should suspect it was owing to the generosity of lady bellaston can hardly imagine any other to clear therefore the honour of mr jones and to do justice by the liberality of the lady he had really received this present from her who though she did not give much into the hackney charities of the age such as building hospitals etc was not however entirely void of that christian virtue and conceive very rightly i think that a young fellow of merit without a shilling in the world was no improper object of this virtue mr jones and mr nightingale had been invited to dine this day with mrs miller at the appointed hour therefore the two young gentlemen with the two girls attended in the parlour where they waited from three till almost five before the good woman appeared she had been out of town to visit a relation of whom at her return she gave the following account i hope gentlemen you will pardon my making you wait i am sure if you knew the occasion i have been to see a cousin of mine about six miles off who now lies in it should be a warning to all persons says she looking at her daughters how they marry indiscreetly there is no happiness in this world without a competency oh nancy how shall i describe the wretched condition in which i found your poor cousin she has scarce lain in a week and there was she this dreadful weather in a cold room without any curtains to her bed and not a bushel of coals in her house to supply her with fire her second son that sweet little fellow lies ill of a quinsy in the same bed with his mother for there is no other bed in the house poor little tommy i believe nancy you will never see your favourite any more for he is really very ill the rest of the children are in pretty good health but molly i am afraid will do herself an injury she is but thirteen years old mr nightingale and yet in my life i never saw a better nurse she tends both her mother and her brother and what is wonderful in a creature so young she shows all the cheerfulness in the world to her mother and yet i saw her i saw the poor child mr nightingale turn about and privately wipe the tears from her eyes here mrs miller was prevented by her own tears from going on and there was not i believe a person present who did not accompany her in them at length she a little recovered herself and proceeded thus in all this distress the mother supports her spirits in a surprising manner the danger of her son sits heaviest upon her and yet she endeavours as much as possible to conceal even this concern on her husband's account her grief however sometimes gets the better of all her endeavours for she was always extravagantly fond of this boy and a most sensible sweet-tempered creature it is i protest i was never more affected in my life than when i heard the little wretch who was hardly yet seven years old while his mother was wetting him with her tears beg her to be comforted indeed mamma cried the child i shan't die god almighty i'm sure won't take tommy away let heaven be ever so fine a place i'd rather stay here and starve with you and my papa than go to it pardon me gentlemen i can't help it says she wiping her eyes such sensibility and affection in a child and yet perhaps he is the least object of pity for a day or two will most probably place him beyond the reach of all human evils the father is indeed most worthy of compassion poor man his countenance is the very picture of horror and he looks like one rather dead than alive oh heavens what a scene did i behold at my first coming into the room the good creature was lying behind his bolster supporting at once both his child and his wife he had nothing on but a thin waistcoat for his coat was spread over the bed to supply the want of blankets when he rose up at my entrance i scarce knew him as comely a man mr jones within this fortnight as you ever beheld 
Mr. Nightingale has seen him. His eyes sunk, his face pale with a long beard, his body shivering with cold and worn with hunger too, for my cousin says she can hardly prevail upon him to eat. He told me himself in a whisper. He told me. I can't repeat it. He said he could not bear to eat the bread his children wanted. And yet, can you believe it, gentlemen? In all this misery, his wife has as good caudle as if she lay in the midst of the greatest affluence. I tasted it, and I scarce ever tasted better. The means of procuring her this, he said, he believed was sent to him by an angel from heaven. I know not what he meant, for I had not spirits enough to ask a single question. This was a love match, as they call it, on both sides. That is, a match between two beggars. I must indeed say I never saw a fonder couple, but what is their fondness good for but to torment each other? Indeed, mamma, cries Nancy, I have always looked upon my cousin Anderson, for that was her name, as one of the happiest of women. I am sure, says Mrs. Miller, the case at present is much otherwise, for any one might have discerned that the tender consideration of each other's sufferings makes the most intolerable part of their calamity, both to the husband and the wife, compared to which hunger and cold, as they affect their own persons only, are scarce evils. Nay, the very children, the youngest, which is not two years old, excepted, feel in the same manner, for they are a most loving family, and if they had but a bare competency, would be the happiest people in the world. Well, I never saw the least sign of misery at their house, replied Nancy. I am sure my heart bleeds for what you now tell me. Oh, child, answered the mother, she hath always endeavored to make the best of everything. They have always been in great distress, but indeed this absolute ruin hath been brought upon them by others. The poor man was bail for the villain his brother, and about a week ago, the very day before her lying in, their goods were all carried away and sold by an execution. He sent a letter to me of it by one of the bailiffs which the villain never delivered. What must he think of my suffering a week to pass before he heard of me? It was not with dry eyes that Jones heard this narrative. When it was ended, he took Mrs. Miller apart with him to another room, and delivering her his purse, in which was a sum of fifty pounds, desired her to send as much of it as she thought proper to these poor people. The look which Mrs. Miller gave Jones on this occasion is not easy to be described. She burst into a kind of agony of transport, and cried out, "'Good heavens! Is there such a man in the world?' But recollecting herself, she said, "'Indeed, I know one such, but can there be another?' "'I hope, madam,' cries Jones, "'there are many who have common humanity, "'for to relieve such distresses in our fellow creatures "'can hardly be called more.' Mrs. Miller then took ten guineas, which were the utmost he could prevail with her to accept, and said, "'She would find some means of conveying them early the next morning,' adding, that she had herself done some little matter for the poor people, and had not left them in quite so much misery as she found them. They then returned to the parlour, where Nightingale expressed much concern at the dreadful situation of these wretches, whom indeed he knew, for he had seen them more than once at Mrs. Miller's. He inveighed against the folly of making oneself liable for the debts of others, vented many bitter execrations against the brother, and concluded with wishing something could be done for the unfortunate family. "'Suppose, madam,' said he, you should recommend them to Mr. Allworthy? Or what do you think of a collection? I will give them a guinea with all my heart. Mrs. Miller made no answer, and Nancy, to whom her mother had whispered the generosity of Jones, turned pale upon the occasion, though if either of them was angry with Nightingale, it was surely without reason. For the liberality of Jones, if he had known it, was not an example which he had any obligation to follow, and there are thousands who would not have contributed a single halfpenny, as indeed he did not in effect 
for he made no tender of anything, and therefore, as the others thought proper to make no demand, he kept his money in his pocket. I have, in truth, observed, and shall never have a better opportunity than at present to communicate my observation, that the world are in general divided into two opinions concerning charity, which are the very reverse of each other. One party seems to hold that all acts of this kind are to be esteemed as voluntary gifts, and however little you give, if indeed no more than your good wishes, you acquire a great degree of merit in so doing. Others, on the contrary, appear to be as firmly persuaded that beneficence is a positive duty, and that whenever the rich fall greatly short of their ability in relieving the distresses of the poor, their pitiful largesses are so far from being meritorious that they have only performed their duty by halves, and are in some sense more contemptible than those who have entirely neglected it. To reconcile these different opinions is not in my power. I shall only add that the givers are generally of the former sentiment, and the receivers are almost universally inclined to the latter. End of chapter 8 Chapter 9 Which treats of matters of a very different kind from those in the preceding chapter. In the evening, Jones met his lady again, and a long conversation again ensued between them, but as it consisted only of the same ordinary occurrences as before, we shall avoid mentioning particulars, which we despair of rendering agreeable to the reader, unless he is one whose devotion to the fair sex, like that of the papists to their saints, wants to be raised by the help of pictures. But I am so far from desiring to exhibit such pictures to the public that I would wish to draw a curtain over those that have been lately set forth in certain French novels, very bungling copies of which have been presented to us here under the name of translations. Jones grew still more and more impatient to see Sophia, and finding, after repeated interviews with Lady Bellaston, no likelihood of obtaining this by her means, for, on the contrary, the lady began to treat even the mention of the name of Sophia with resentment, he resolved to try some other method. He made no doubt but that Lady Bellaston knew where his angel was, so he thought it most likely that some of her servants should be acquainted with the same secret. Partridge, therefore, was employed to get acquainted with those servants, in order to fish this secret out of them. Few situations can be imagined more uneasy than that to which his poor master was at present reduced. For, besides the difficulties he met with in discovering Sophia, besides the fears he had of having disobliged her, and the assurances he had received from Lady Bellaston of the resolution which Sophia had taken against him, and of her having purposely concealed herself from him, which he had sufficient reason to believe might be true, he had still a difficulty to combat which it was not in the power of his mistress to remove, however kind her inclination might have been. This was the exposing of her to be disinherited of all her father's estate, the almost inevitable consequence of their coming together without a consent, which he had no hopes of ever obtaining. Add to all these the many obligations which Lady Bellaston, whose violent fondness we can no longer conceal, had heaped upon him, so that by her means he was now become one of the best-dressed men about town, and was not only relieved from those ridiculous distresses we have before mentioned, but was actually raised to a state of affluence beyond the, what he had ever known. Now, though there are many gentlemen who very well reconcile it to their consciences, to possess themselves of the whole fortune of a woman, without making her any kind of return, Yet to a mind, the proprietor of which doth not deserve to be hanged, nothing is, I believe, more irksome than to support love with gratitude only, especially where inclination pulls the heart a contrary way. Such was the unhappy case of Jones, for though the virtuous love he bore to Sophia, 
and which left very little affection for any other woman, had been entirely out of the question, he could never have been able to have made any adequate return to the generous passion of this lady, who had indeed been once an object of desire, but was now entered at least into the autumn of life, though she wore all the gaiety of youth, both in her dress and manner. Nay, she contrived still to maintain the roses in her cheeks, but these, like flowers forced out of season by art, had none of that lively blooming freshness with which nature, at the proper time, pedects her own productions. She had, besides, a certain imperfection, which renders some flowers, though very beautiful to the eye, very improper to be placed in a wilderness of sweets, and what above all others is most disagreeable to the breath of love. Though Jones saw all these discouragements on the one side, he felt his obligations as full as strongly on the other, nor did he less plainly discern the ardent passion whence those obligations proceeded, the extreme violence of which, if he failed to equal, he well knew the lady would think him ungrateful, and what is worse, he would have thought himself so. He knew the tacit consideration upon which all her favours were conferred, and as his necessity obliged him to accept them, so his honour, he concluded, forced him to pay the price. This, therefore, he resolved to do, whatever misery it cost him, and to devote himself to her, from that great principle of justice, by which the laws of some countries oblige a debtor, who is no otherwise capable of discharging his debt, to become the slave of his creditor. While he was meditating on these matters, he received the following note from the lady. A very foolish, but a very perverse accident hath happened since our last meeting, which makes it improper I should see you any more at the usual place. I will, if possible, contrive some other place by to-morrow. In the meantime, adieu. This disappointment, perhaps, the reader may conclude, was not very great, but if it was, he was quickly relieved, for in less than an hour afterwards another note was brought him from the same hand, which contained as follows. I have altered my mind since I wrote, a change of which, if you are no stranger to the tenderest of all passions, you will not wonder at. I am now resolved to see you this evening at my own house, whatever may be the consequence. Come to me exactly at seven. I dine abroad, but will be at home by that time. A day, I find, to those that sincerely love, seems longer than I imagined. If you should accidentally be a few moments before me, bid them show you into the drawing-room. To confess the truth, Jones was less pleased with this last epistle than he had been with the former, as he was prevented by it from complying with the earnest entreaties of Mr. Nightingale, with whom he had now contracted much intimacy and friendship. These entreaties were to go with that young gentleman and his company to a new play, which was to be acted that evening, and which a very large party had agreed to damn, from some dislike they had taken to the author, who was a friend to one of Mr. Nightingale's acquaintance, and this sort of fun, our hero, we are ashamed to confess, would willingly have preferred to the above kind of appointment, but his honour got the better of his inclination. Before we attend him to this intended interview with the lady, we think proper to account for both the preceding notes, as a reader may possibly be a little surprised at the imprudence of Lady Bellaston in bringing her lover to the very house where her rival was lodged. First, then, the mistress of the house where these lovers had hitherto met, and who had been for some years a pensioner to that lady, was now become a Methodist, and had that very morning waited upon her ladyship, and after rebuking her very severely for her past life, had positively declared that she would on no account be instrumental in carrying on any of her affairs for the future. The hurry of spirits into which this accident threw the lady made her despair of possibly finding in any other convenience to meet Jones that evening, but as she began a little to recover from her uneasiness at this disappointment, she set her thoughts to work, 
when luckily it came to her head to propose to Sophia to go to the play, which was immediately consented to, and a proper lady provided for her companion. Mrs. Honour was likewise dispatched with Mrs. Etoff on the same errand of pleasure, and thus her own house was left free for the safe reception of Mr. Jones, with whom she promised herself two or three hours of uninterrupted conversation after the return from the place where she dined, which was at a friend's house, in a pretty distant part of the town, near her old place of assignation, where she had engaged herself before she was well apprised of the revolution that had happened in the mind and morals of her late confidant. End of chapter 9